So, we are in John chapter 10. Uh, We'll be picking up with verse 22. The first half of this uh, chapter uh, was uh, the theme of I am the Good Shepherd. And I had said previously that the whole rest of the chapter is Jesus kind of unpacking just a few verses um, right at the start. And he says, truly, truly, there's that highlighted statement, you know, it's going to follow whenever they say truly, truly, or verily, verily, I think as the King James says, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand. This um, figure of speech, this this parable, this um, teaching right there, we get the main characters, right? We know that there is a group of people that are sheep. We know that there are a group, or at least there is a person who is uh, a shepherd um, or a gatekeeper. Uh, the metaphor shifts a little bit. Uh, and then we know that there are people that uh, don't belong in that relationship. Uh, these are the thieves and the robbers, the people that want to get after the sheep, um, climb over the wall and so forth. And that flows through this. And of course, we know that um, He's directly speaking to the thieves and the robbers as being those uh, false um, uh, teachers and false leaders and hypocrit- hypocritical Pharisees that were um, ha- were really missing the mark, right? And um, that's that's who he's really speaking against, and um, that continues. Uh, this back and forth continues as we pick up today, and. In verse 22, and we talked about this a little bit last time, but we'll touch on it again. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And I spoke last time that there is a a little bit of debate as to whether the first part of chapter 10 goes with chapter 9 in terms of time, or whether it goes with the rest of chapter 10, this right here. Um, A little bit of debate there, but... Uh, certainly the audience um, is the same audience and the theme is the same and John puts them together uh, in such a way that I think it, if not the exact time, it's it's close. And uh, certainly this Feast of Dedication uh, was the highlight um, of what we're talking about today. And as I talked before, this is what we now call Hanukkah. And this is um, the only festival that's mentioned in the Bible that wasn't established in the Old Testament because we know the occasion for this happened in that period of time between the Testaments. Um, We talked about how uh, Antiochus um, the fourth maybe (laughs) um, uh, desecrated the temple in 167 BC desecrated it you know slaughtered pigs on the altar and all this sort of stuff. Um, In 164, three years later, uh, by that time, um, uh, a response to that, a 
a rebellion to the oppression, so to speak, had built up and was sufficient enough to kick them out and to retake the temple and to, as this calls it, the Feast of Dedication. This was a period of time when they had to repurify the temple, re-sanctify it, and that's where the lighting of the lights came with Hanukkah and so forth. And uh, lights is a big theme of, um, of Hanukkah, and uh, that speaks to the miracle there. Um, but it was all about dedicating this place, setting it aside for worship, for, you know, to show the righteousness of God and so forth. So that's, you're going to see that uh, later as, as we go along. Uh, in any event, it makes sense when it says, and it was winter, verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So, you know, Jesus would often be on the hillsides teaching or in the courtyard teaching and a very open air, wandering sort of ministry, but it's cold now. And in this temple uh, area, there was a, a central courtyard that was open to the air, but this group of columns around it was, um, there was a, a, an outer wall. I don't know if it was um, like tent material or if it was a structure, but in any event, um, this was cordoned off so you could be inside the temple uh, and be shielded from the outside elements, at least from the wind. And so uh, that's where Jesus was in this more enclosed in uh, space, but they're walking in the colonnade of Solomon. And it's mentioned there, this colonnade of Solomon, uh, you know, the temple had been destroyed. Um, and then, you know, Nehemiah came and rebuilt the temple and so forth. This colonnade of Solomon was some of the ruins that were had survived that previous destruction. So when Herod helped to rebuild the temple, um, this was some of the, the old part. The colonnade of Solomon uh, is where that was. So, um, so that's where Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of so Solomon. And the the uh, the point here is that this is more of a confined space, and you'll also see why John puts that detail in a moment. Uh, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, "How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly." So it says. So the Jews gathered around him. So these weren't just people from the marketplace, right? Because they were in the market. They were, doing their, they were doing their jobs. These were people without jobs. These were, the, these were the Pharisees, right? These were the people who had nothing better to do than to sit around and debate and talk about, quote, godly things. Um, so these Jews, these were your typical Pharisees. These were your people that were always seeking to trap him. In fact, when it says these Jews gathered around him, that gathered around word is basically mean they cornered him. They encircled him, is what the word says. They, they gathered around him, kind of pinned him in, so they could confront him and try to find something that they could trap him with. And, of course, we'd seen this several times in the past, but that was the circumstance here. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Some translators says, keep us in suspense. They say you could also translate it, how long will you continue to annoy us? Because, you know, surely they probably must have been a little bit annoyed because he always had a comeback, you know. He always had a comeback. So here he comes. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. So now we're picking back up that shepherd and sheep theme. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus, it says, Jesus answered them. It says, I told you, and you did not believe. He's, he, and then he reminds them of the ways that he's told them. But when he says, I told you, they say, tell us plainly, was their request. And Jesus' reply to them is basically, I've told you sufficiently. And I think it's interesting that, in a way, I think this is perhaps an indictment on our modern age, that people seem to have lost the ability to be active listeners and to reason with the information that they're receiving, right? We have never been in an age where there is more information. I think we would all agree, right? But never has it been more important that you're able to reason through this, sift it out, what makes sense, what is, how can I put this together in a, in a fashion that just kind of makes sense? That skill appears to have been lost on people, right? This is why, um, you know, of course, the, I hesitate to use the term fake news because it has political connotations, but there has always been fake news, right? Throughout the, the whole world, um, throughout history, there's always been fake news. But um, nowadays, um, uh, it's getting even harder. Uh, artificial intelligence can create, there, you could create right now a video that would show me just as if somebody was videoing me right now, and it could be me instructing somebody how to rob a bank. And it would look and sound just like me, and it could potentially be very convincing. And that could happen to any public figure at any period of time. So, you know, the first time when you see stories about whoever and wherever, whether it's somebody you might tend to align yourself with or not, your first rule should always be give that person benefit of the doubt. What you just read might not be true at all. And you need to take it into account and start to stack it up with other things that you know to be true about this person, right? Years ago, back when I taught a class in this very room, um, we went through a study called the Peacemaker Series. I don't know if any of you guys were there for that. Um, by a guy named Ken Sandy, and if you're not familiar with Peacemaker Ministries, uh, I think the name may have changed a little bit by, right now, but his whole teaching is about resolving uh, conflict, and um, he talks a lot about giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, he said, if there are two ways to interpret something that you hear, make a personal choice to interpret it in the way that reflects best on that person. And he said, if you do that, you'll never 
you'll always be on the, the, the high road, I guess, is what he's trying to say. You know, until proven otherwise, give that person benefit of the doubt. And I think that's, that's certainly true. But um, in any event, um, he's told them lots of things, and they couldn't believe it. And so here in this section that I just read, you hear this interplay between the importance of belief in order for you to even know who Jesus is. And to us, that makes sense. But if you think about it, uh, that, that still exists today, right? Um, when a person gets saved, and then they start to read the, the Bible, maybe they've read it before, but when, they, when they're saved and read the Bible things that never made sense to them start to make sense. Um, the skeptic, the person who's not a believer, they'll read the Bible and take it a totally different way. They just simply don't get it. And I think that's what Jesus is getting in here. He says, I told you and you don't believe. Verse 26, it says, you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. So this gets into that which came first sort of thing. Do you have to understand in order to believe, or do you believe and then you understand? And as we've talked about so many times, the answer is yes. Um, yes. Somehow within the mystery of God, there is that, that mix that happens that somehow uh, supports our responsibility to make a choice for God and also God's um, uh, selection of us and empowering us to even have the desire to make that choice. I mean, it's, it's hidden within the counsel of God in ways that I don't fully understand, but I believe at all. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And... He talked about this before, this intimate relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. So counter, remember a few verses before, he talked about um, those false shepherds, so to speak, in not very flattering terms. And he was referring back to Ezekiel, where God was really condemning them, saying, you are not taking care of your sheep. You are, you know, you're basically abusing your flock. You're not serving your flock. And, and Jesus is saying, you know, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, right? I'm pretty sure if you had a shepherd and all you did was beat your sheep, they wouldn't follow you very long. So the fact that they're following Jesus is because they have come to know him. They have come to believe in him and they, they see him for who he is. And listen to this, and this is where we can just kind of Kind of just, as Pastor uh, Gray says, we can marinate on this a little bit. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who has the ability to give eternal life? God. Uh, if they didn't remember with this I told you, statement 
And if they didn't believe when he reminds them of all the works that he's done, and John is full of those miracles, those signs, right? Then he's for sure telling them in this statement by saying, I give them eternal life. I mean, that's a sure statement of divinity for sure. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Anyone who has ever struggled with wondering if they have done something to affect their salvation should always land at this verse. Because when it says, no one will snatch them out of my hand, that includes that person as well. You can't snatch yourself out. Moreover, verse 29, my father who has given them to me. So they were the fathers to begin with. The father's given them to Jesus. He said, my father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So Jesus has everyone in his hand who are his flock. And God has everyone in his hand who is in that same flock. And he goes on, he says, and I and the Father are one. In other words, that level of security is as strong as the unity and purpose that me and the Father have. I mean, that's, that's the strongest security you can ever have. It is the unbreakable lock. I don't know if any of you watch YouTube. There is a, a segment that is strangely fascinating called the Lock Picking Lawyer. Have you ever seen him? This is a, an attorney, apparently. You never see anything but his hands. And his hobby is to pick locks. <laughs> Presumably in the hopes that people would make better locks that he couldn't pick. It's fascinating. It's clean. It's, for those of you that with screwdrivers and mechanical things it's just amazing um, but this is the ultimate unpickable lock right here you are as secure as the connection between God the Father and God the Son I and the Father are one now verse 30 would seem to be a great verse for the divinity of Jesus as well. And it kind of is, but most people agree when it says, I and the Father are one, that because of some of the Greek translation, what it's mostly meaning is we are unified in purpose about this, right? Our purpose is keeping our flock secure. We are together on this. Now, there's some peripheral things that make it that that you're also one God. That's true. But that the big point here is the unity of purpose. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them. Now, I thought this was interesting. I didn't pick up on this until one of the commentators I read. Um... What was the question? When it says, 
And Jesus answered them. Well, the question was, they were picking up stones. So his, his response wasn't to a question. His response was, okay, I see you reaching for stones now. <laughs> That's basically what was happening. Um, the Jews picked up stones again to stone them, which is kind of interesting because they were inside the temple. Were there just like lots of rocks laying around? Or did they like, yeah, I mean, were they like, conceal carry you know where they already bring in their own rocks to the party just in case um that's i mean think about that you wouldn't think there'd be a whole lot of stones just laying around but anyway they picked up stones i think they brought them uh that's just my analysis there uh you certainly won't find that in the commentary <laughs> jesus answered them i've shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? So he turns it around on them and he says, uh, look, uh, what is it that you're going to stone me for? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now it's interesting, and we'll see this later, um, but one of the commentators pointed out that John often had the... Um, the perpetrator, the antagonist or whatever, often has that person speak the truth um, in kind of an ironic way. Because that's exactly what he had done, right? Um, it is not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself of God. And you could, yep, yeah, yep, that's what it did. Jesus answered them, is it not written, now this is interesting, okay, so bear with me here. I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm adequate to explain this, but I'll give it a shot. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Okay, so Psalm 82. Uh, turn there if you want. Psalm 82 is... Um, a psalm where, you know, I guess David, in, as inspired by God, he describes a situation where God is sitting as judge over the people who have been entrusted to be his emissaries, his representatives, his messengers, his judges, and so forth. Verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Um, so this is weird, right? Where God's saying he's in the midst of the gods. Okay, just hang on. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless? 
Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. You are gods, son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So in Psalm 82, 6, he says, God that is, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. So there is, as you might imagine, some debate as what this means because it is a little obscure. But what seems, the way I understand it from spending a little time on this, is that these I said you are gods are basically the leaders of Israel, the people who have been entrusted with the law, the people that are supposed to be God's emissaries, God's messengers, like I said, and they're not doing it right. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly, show partiality to the wicked, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, and so forth? This sounds very similar to that indictment that we read back in Ezekiel, right? Now, in rabbinic, like the rules of the game, if you were a rabbi debating somebody, Kind of the way that went back and forth is you could pull even a word or a phrase or two and use it to make your point. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like strapping on his rabbi mode and he's going to have a little debate with them. Of course, we know he's going to win at this. But, but that's what he's saying here. He's saying, verse 34, back in John, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Okay, so he's taken them to some text. I said, You are God's. Well, instantly, you know, they know their Bible. They know he's taking them to 82, Psalm 82. And it's going to hit them at a couple levels. First of all, he's saying, Well, God said to these people, I said, You are God's. It says, if he, verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, okay, so he's saying, he's interpreting this passage. Jesus is saying, gods means those who have received the word of God. In this case, it would have been the law. God said those people were gods. You might think judges. It might be another way then what gives you the right to stone me just because I said I'm the son of God? And I think what's unsaid but certainly implied is I said I'm the son of God and I'm doing works that are consistent with godly things. You might also be called gods because you're the people who have been given the law but you're under the same indictment of those people that he was talking about back in Psalm 82. Does that make sense? And then he brings it home personally. If I'm not doing the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do them, 
Even if you don't believe me, believe the works so that you can understand that the Father is in me and that I'm in the Father. In other words, look at the things I've done. Even the things that you've wanted to get me in trouble over. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. One other point to make in verse 36, it says, Do you say of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? He's saying, I was consecrated, I was set apart. This fits with the theme of the Feast of Dedication because the Feast of Dedication, the whole purpose was to consecrate the temple, to set it apart again for worship, to take it out of the pagan hands. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm the one set apart. I'm the one consecrated to bring this word to you, to give eternal life, all those things. And if you go back, John has, this is the, the at least fourth and the final time where he basically says Jesus is the fulfillment of every feast and festival. In John 5, if you take the idea that the Sabbath itself is a weekly feast, a weekly event, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and there's this whole description that John says where Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's beyond the Sabbath. We've looked at a couple of Passovers, and we know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. There was the Feast of Tabernacles, which John talks about when in the passage where it says, I am the light of the world. The Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the big events for the Feast of the Tabernacles was um, they would have these massive lanterns, full pots of oil, and at a particular time they would all light these pots of oil at night, and it would literally light up the whole city. Now, think about it. When it's dark, people might have had a little lamp in their home for a little while before they turned into bed, but there was no public lighting anywhere, right? Um, so if you had this just huge blaze in the middle of the night for the run of this feast, it would have lit up the whole city. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, I got that beat. And just like with Passover, I've got that beat. The Sabbath, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And now in the final way, he's saying, no, I'm the consecrated one. Every, every time that John's brought us a festival or, or an event, he also shows Jesus is more than that. He is a fulfillment of that. He is the, he's the ultimate part of that. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is the last public miracle, right? Because he's going away. Verse 40, he went away again, crossed the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So his last public miracle is 
He's in this enclosed space, encircled by people that want to trap him. They've got rocks. They're still not convinced. And he's gone. Don't you wish he <laughs> He did it again. <laughs> where, did, where did he go? Um, it says he escaped from their hands. I think he probably just disappeared. I picture like, remember the old Star Trek? He got on the transport and, you know, and would, that would be so cool if that was the way it was. Um, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Most people look at this and say, you know, this book started off with John the Baptist. And this little section of John, the first ten chapters, is bookended with, he's kind of closing the book on the public ministry. So John has had display, the, the writer of John has had display after display, miracle after miracle, all of these signs, and they were why? So that we might believe, right? He's made his presentation, he's got his PowerPoint, all the bullets are there, he's better than the festivals, he's better than the Sabbath, all those sorts of things. And then it bookends, it comes to a closure, with John the Baptist again. He goes back across the Jordan where John the Baptist had been and it said everything that John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. So the true, there were people that were, you know, he was still there. He was still ministering and we're going to see what happens uh, next week. Um, although I'm giving some thought to maybe uh, the next two weeks maybe doing a Christmas theme lesson. But if we go uh, on to John, um, these will be things that happened across the Jordan. Um, it just pulls it all together. This is John's presentation. And it says when he went away, this is the last time that he's there until Palm Sunday. The Pharisees, they don't get another chance to really interact with him. This is his final call for them look at what I've done and believe and I'll, I'll have to cut it short but it made me think there is not always a tomorrow for anything in life and John Jesus was there and then he was done with them he brought it to a close that was it. That was her response. Um, so, I guess we'll close there. Father, we thank you that we have uh, such a great passage of Scripture. We thank you that we have the security uh, in you, um, safely in Jesus' hand, safely in the Father's hand. And we pray that you'd, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to look for those who um, have yet to believe. 
Uh, we pray your blessings on all those affected by the tornadoes and all those that are going to assist them, that they would see um, your hands and feet and that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.